1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Joyce Hall, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're excited to talk to Dr. Benjamin Towton about his new book entitled In This Land of Plenty, Mickey Leland and Africa in American Politics. The title is currently out with the University of Pennsylvania Press in the Politics and Culture in Modern America series. Dr. Talton is an associate professor of African history and the diaspora at Temple University, and his book was recently a finalist for the Pauli e. Murray Book Prize from the African American Intellectual History Society. Then, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Amanda, I'm happy to be here.
1: Let's start off by talking about your journey to history and how you ultimately came to become a historian.
0: So my journey begins with me wanting to be a high school a uh, social studies teacher or a, a history teacher, because I, like most, um, I think black kids in the United States, most of my teachers were white. And as I became a, a, a radical high school student here in New York, I'm sitting in Brooklyn, although I, I was in Harlem at the time. I was I was imagining the future of the black race being in the hands of white women who were who were my teachers. I only had maybe one black male teacher. So the goal was to go and be a high school teacher. So when I got to Howard, that was the, that was the plan. But I just really fell in love with the history department, my professors there. I had such wonderful professors there, uh, like uh, Dr. Linda Haywood and Dr. Ed Medford, Allison Blakely, who really showed me what it meant to be a college professor. And so then my my goal shift. And it's Linda Haywood who said, you need to go to the University of Chicago. And I had my idea of what it meant to be a professor was Howard University, And then the public intellectuals that I grew up around, like Dr. Ben and Dr. Clark, Ivan Van Sertema. So the two of those together were very attractive to me. So then I I listened to Dr. Haywood and I went to the University of Chicago. Which, as you could imagine, was nothing like Howard. I mean, they were really very different environments. So it it took me a minute to get used to that, um, just the environment, socially and intellectually. But I think Howard very well prepared me for the rigors of the University of Chicago. And I was fortunate to work Mm -hmm. with Ralph Austin and Thomas Holt and uh, another committee member was Sandra Green from from Cornell. And I was fortunate to get my first job at Hofstra University and then six years later moved on to Temple. I've been at Temple. This is my 13th year. Well, I'm starting my 13th year at, at Temple. But I really credit Howard University with my aspirations to become a historian in terms of mentorship, in terms of writing, in terms of not being afraid to put your work out there and get critiqued and build on those critiques to be a better writer and a better thinker and just to really just uh, help shape the historical narratives based on the, the documented evidence.
1: And, you, and you've and named some uh, some scholars who have actually influenced me as well. So it's, oh, it's wonderful. great to hear about, yeah. about that reach. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about uh, in This Land of Plenty, um, how you came to write this book, and tell us a little bit about who Mickey Leland
0: was. Sure, and even that is somewhat memoirish, because Mickey Leland was a congressperson throughout the 1980s, and I was coming of age in the 1980s. So in many ways, I'm writing about the period that shaped my own life, but I'll back up a little bit and just say that it was a such a learning curve to write this book because I'm trained in, when I was at University of Chicago, my goal was really to be be engaged in scholarship on the African continent. Although I'm African American, I wanted to be as far away from the the narratives of, of African Americans' relations to Africa. I have nothing against that, but I really wanted to be grounded in learning about African cultures, African languages, archives, of the African experience. I was really concerned with African experiences among themselves during colonial rule. So that's what my dissertation was about. I wrote a dissertation on Northern Ghana, looking at ethnic politics in Northern Ghana. So I spent a lot of time, not just in Ghana, but in the rural areas of the North, which is the margins of the margins of of the country. And that's what I was really interested in is looking at marginalized communities and how they protect their interests and how they use history or use a historical narrative to reinvent who they are. And that became my first, my dissertation and then my first book, uh, Politics of Social Change in, in Ghana, which centers on the Konkomba people of Northern Ghana. And so I finished that in 2009, it came out in 2010. By then I, was, I had moved from Hofstra to, to Temple University and I had two young kids. And the idea was to go back to Ghana and really uh, ground myself in a new project, go into archives, do oral histories. I wasn't quite sure what it would be. But then with these young children in the house, I, it was it just, you, I just did not feel comfortable leaving for, I could, not being comfortable wasn't the only part of it. <laughs> I, I could not go to Ghana for six months and nine months and just be in the field that way. And so I began to think about ways in which I can do Africa from the United States. Of course, I continued to go to Ghana and I continued to travel to other parts of the continent, but my trip became more like two, three weeks as opposed to six months. And so I began to think about policy and trying to uh, historicize policy, thinking of issues of sanitation and public health and ways in which I could be part of those conversations. How can I historicize the current moment? But also, I I realized that Mickey Leland was in my my brain. Uh, He had never really left me. I discovered him when I was a high school student. I went to the Bronx High School of Science for my first two years of high school, Mm -hmm. living in Harlem, 1989. And I was Africa-obsessed. I didn't go as far as changing my name, but I certainly, you know, wore the, 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 the um, medallions around my neck, uh, the leather medallions around my neck. I was going to African studies circles, reading uh, Dr. Clark's work, reading anything I could get my hands on with Africa. And I wasn't alone. I was, I'm, I'm 46. So many people of my gener- many young people of my generation were Africa obsessed. A lot of that has to do, of course, with the anti-apartheid movement and the veterans of the civil rights and black power movements that were around us. And so I'm sitting there, being this 16-year-old, or maybe I was 15 at the time in 1989, I think I was 15, in my living room in my apartment in Harlem, and watching the evening news, and I see the story of a congressman who's missing in the mountains of Ethiopia. And they're showing this footage of him, dancing in vid- uh, villages, sort of this montage of his life. He's he's missing, not considered dead at the time. He had been traveling to um, southeastern Ethiopia as part of a delegation to uh, look at refugee camps, Ethiopian-sponsored refugee camps that were housing Sudanese refugees from what's now South Sudan. And I had no idea who this man was. They said, Mickey Leland, his his delegation disappeared in the hills of Ethiopia, and they're showing this footage of him. He's a congressperson, but he has a dashiki on. He's a congressperson, but he's dancing in villages in Africa. He's a, a congressperson, and he's black, and he's helping deliver food aid. And in my Afrocentric mind at the time in 1989, that was... It resonated with who I was and the space in which I was operating. But it didn't. The the fact that he was a a congressperson was new to me, not protesting apartheid. Like I saw congresspeople protesting Mm -hmm. apartheid, but here's someone who's doing more than that. And I'm sitting there, my 15, maybe 16 year old self. and I said, that's the person I want to be. That's that's who I want to be. That's what I want to do. I want to do something like that. And I moved on in life, Howard University of Chicago, Hofstra teaching and here I'm at Temple thinking about a new project. And Mickey Leland's in the back of my mind. And so I start Googling around and searching to see what's out there. And there's there's nothing on Mickey Leland and there's a little tiny Wikipedia page. And I start to look around and find some things and see what he. I, I associated him with hunger because of that news broadcast. hmm. Uh, and obviously, subsequently, we, we, we find out that he, that he died in the plane crash, along with 13, 15 others in his delegation. So I associated him with hunger because of what I learned then. But then as I looked around, he's affiliated with many other policies around Africa. And so I decided this is something I could work on. And I was shocked that no one else had written anything about him. I'm no longer shocked at the time. Now I'm no longer shocked now, uh, understanding that Congress people are very difficult to write about. And so that became the that became the project. It ri- originally, the idea was to write about the challenge of food aid and use Mickey Leland as a, as a vehicle to do that. But then I realized as I did the research, going to archives here, the UN archives and going to uh, the, the presidential libraries and looking at libraries of uh, international NGOs, volunteer relief societies, And looking at his own papers at Texas Southern University, I see that he was involved in so much more in Africa. So the book essentially becomes uh, the story of Mickey Leland and Africa. He was involved in so much more than Africa as a congressperson. But he's a he's a window into uh, the anti-apartheid movement. He's a window into how food aid and international relief become politicized in the 1980s in particular. He's a window into diplomacy with African nations. He's also a window into the afterlife of radicalism, as I say, and really what happened to the Black Power movement, what happened to many of these Black Power activists, and civil rights activists after the 1970s. Where did, where did they go? And so that's, that was the, the, the germ for the book. So it became much more than what I thought it would become. It wasn't just Mickey Leland and hunger. It became, it became Mickey Leland and, and Africa and a window into this moment that I say it was unique. We no longer have Congress mm-hmm. people like Mickey Linton. He wasn't alone at the time. Obviously, there were Ron Dellums and Charles Payne and Charles and Diggs and there's many others who were involved in African policy. But to me, he really embodied this pan-Africanism, this sense of solidarity with the third world in a very unique way. And also, he really just embodied the spirit of the 1980s when Africa mm-hmm. was so alive in, in our politics and in popular culture. So that was really the genesis. That was the genesis of the, of the book. And that's how that's how it came to be.
1: Right. I, I, I definitely saw all of that uh, in the book, that he is a window to this important moment uh, or these important moments in the 1980s. And, and this point that you're making about afterlives is also very salient, salient. Um, afterlives of black power, third world politics of um, just, yeah, like the tr- just congressional, like what's happening in Congress um, during the Cold War at this moment when it's becoming stale. Um, All of that is definitely captured. Um, So as you kind of uh, just mentioned, the book draws from uh, various sources and archives uh, to to stitch together this transnational history of African-Americans influence on foreign policy. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about your approach to the source materials, some of the experiences that you had when doing the research or perhaps interviews for this project? Sure.
0: Sure. As I said, it was I was I spent six years writing a dissertation about a rural community in northern Ghana and then the next six some odd years turning that into a book. So I was really, really grounded in West Africa. And it's kind of a uh, bold, I guess, of me to think that I can go off and write a book on U.S. foreign policy in Africa in the 1970s and 80s, including South Africa and Ethiopia. Uh, so I had to it, the learning curve was real. And I I underestimated it. I I thought I knew Black power until I started trying to read and write about Black power. I thought I really knew the civil rights movement until I started reading and writing about the civil rights movement. And I thought I knew Ethiopian politics pretty well. But as I realized that this is a a steeper hill to climb than I anticipated, I turned to novels, quite honestly, to, to let me imagine these spaces, novels about... Even Matsumengiste was fantastic. Beneath the Lion's Gaze um, was fantastic Mm -hmm. for getting to understand a big part of the book that I I try to I try to I try to twin the black power movement and parts of the civil rights movement with the international student movements. And that's why I say the afterlife of radicalism, because these folks like Leland are coming out of this radical moment in the 1960s, 1970s, when they really think revolution is on the horizon. And Leland fashioned himself. He thought of himself as a revolutionary. He really thought that he had to. we had to bring down the United States as it exists and, and build it up. And I try to pull Ethiopia in, into that as well, because they have their own student movement in the 1960s and 1970s that becomes the Ethiopian revolution. Of course, South Africa as well is a big part of it, because South Africa becomes the focal point of the African-American uh, uh, engagement with Africa in the 1970s and 80s. So I bring in the South African student movement, but novels really helped me think about not just the chronology and some of the major players and thinkers in these movements, but just what it might've felt like to be there. So I turned to novels uh, from South Africa, novels from Ethiopia. I tried to read some Ethiopian poetry. The goal was not to, I had to write a lot about the famine because the famine is important for my project because uh, 1973, 72, 73, the famine in Ethiopia really galvanized the students and helped lead to the downfall of Emperor Haile Selassie. And of course, 10 years later, the famine, the famous famine in Ethiopia, 1983, 84 into 85 is really what puts Ethiopia on the world stage and becomes a stand-in for the failure of post-colonial Africa, even though Ethiopia wasn't ever colonized Mm -hmm. formally. So re- reading about these events, reading poetry to try to get the, the, the Ethiopian perspective. I didn't want to be an American, an African-American, writing about Africa from the United States. I wanted to drop into the United States in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then drop in Ethiopia in the 60s, 70s, 80s, drop in South Africa in the 60s, 70s, 80s. So this really, hopefully, I may I pulled this off, and you can tell me mm-hmm. if, I, if I have or not, Amanda. Uh, but the idea is to really allow them to speak for themselves and show that they are shaping history and they're not just engaging the U.S. They have their own movements and histories and perspectives as well. So novels were very useful for that. Uh, The goal was to have a book that was probably 50-50 Africa, U.S., but it it ends up, you could tell me if I'm wrong, probably more like 70-30, just because of the archival material. I don't don't read or write Amharic or Tigrinya, so I couldn't get into the documents. There are many are translated into English, and many of them wrote in English in, in Ethiopia. So I was able to use some of those documents, but I used a lot of the presidential library documents from um, Carter. I spent a lot of time with the Reagan Libra- in the Reagan Library in your part of the world in California, <laughs> but also Leland has a, an extensive archive at Texas Southern University. In fact, when I began. His his papers weren't weren't organized yet. They were sitting in boxes at Texas Southern mm-hmm. University. And there is a center named after him and Barbara Jordan, who preceded him in Congress in 72, mm-hmm. the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland Center for Public Policy at Texas Southern University, another HBCU. And so I called I called the library and I said, I, I'm a researcher. I want to I wanna write about Mickey Leland and his relationship to Africa. And they said I could not do that because his papers aren't organized yet. And I called back again with, to try to get to somebody else. And I reached Judon Boney, who was the, the director of the Leland Center at the time. And he listened to me talk. And I, I was talking as much as I could because I wanted to sell him on this. I'm calling from New York, and he's he's in he's in Houston. And he said, OK, we'll see what we can do. And I believe, I don't want to be arrogant about it, but I believe it was my call that helped him really push to get his papers into out of storage into the Leland Center and open them up. And about three months later, I, I flew to Houston. I was the, one, of, one of the first, if not the first, to go in there and explore the Mickey Leland Papers. And I'm certainly the book in this land of plenty is the first published piece out of the Mickey Leland Papers. And they're quite extensive, very large, and they cover his legislative career. He was in the Texas uh, state legislature from 1972 to uh, 1979 when he entered Congress. And then 1989 until his tragic death in 1989, he was in Congress. But there's, there's so much more to do on Mickey Leland. I just touched the Africa side. So for anyone who's interested in housing and homelessness, public health, Native American affairs, people who are interested in transportation, uh, uh, re- issues related to senior citizens, Vietnam, other third world, global south issues. Mickey Leland was his friends described uh, describe him as having ADHD because he was involved in so many different things. And so again, I just, I just tapped into the the, Afri- the, uh, the Africa side of his story, but there's so much more to do. So the Leland Archives is really the the center of my of my research. But I also traveled to Ethiopia. I wanted to walk around in these spaces where these massive feeding camps were in the 1980s. If, mm-hmm. if you see the documentaries, with these massive feeding centers, and I learned so much from just traveling and walking around in these spaces to see that. On camera, we we caught these these people who were suffering, but that's that's the famine narrative. Outside of these camps, people were going about their everyday lives, and so there's this interesting juxtaposition between those who who did not have access to food, which, which, which is really what causes famine—not the lack of food, but lack of access to food—and those around them who had this. So it was a real education just being there, walking the walking the streets of Addis and Lalibela and Mekele Lali and in the north of Ethiopia, and also seeing that although here we don't, people don't remember Le- Mickey Leland and his life. Very few do outside of Houston and Washington, DC. but in Ethiopia, he's a hero. There are buildings named after Mickey Leland. There is a street, uh, Mickey Leland Boulevard, in the heart of Addis Ababa. So that was really illuminating to me, just to see the ways in which he, in this formerly Marxist country, was Marxist at the time, the ways in which he was seen as the good American. He was seen as someone who, who cared. And so that was very important. But also I benefited from a host of conversations with Mickey Leland's uh, former staff members, his friends, his, his comrades from his days as an activist in the third and fifth ward of Houston with the student movement and his efforts to form a clinic uh, that resembled the Black Panthers clinics. Just in conversations with them, I got a sense of his personality, his charisma, his, dedicated, his dedication to, to folks in the community. And so that was very important. So. Uh bringing together all these different sources from, from literature to archives to these conversations and just walking around spaces, walking around Houston, seeing what Mickey Leland may have seen, smelling the smells he may have smelled. I know that might sound corny, but it's it's important to me to really just get a sense of what these people might have listened to and heard and listening to the music from the era, listening to music from Ethiopia, listening to music from South Africa and getting a sense and just reading the paper. I read so Read tons and tons of newspapers from the Ethiopian Herald, mm-hmm. the Drum in South Africa, South African papers, uh, African American press from the Chicago Defender to the Amsterdam News to the Afro American. Just reading about what the Congressional Black Caucus was doing, which Leland was the chair of from 1985 to 1987. Just the reading about how they talk about Africa, how they talk about Ethiopia, how they talk about apartheid, and then. The strategy was to see, OK, what else is in the news? So this is what I'm looking for. I'm reading about these sto- I'm reading these stories to document, help me document this, these events. But also, what else is going on at the time? What else is the Black press covering? What else is the New York Times talking about? What are the other pertinent issues in the news at the time? And I just really wanted to immerse myself in that moment and try to represent that in my writing. So that was really my approach to the research. And hopefully, it comes across as multi-archival, truly a multinational project woven through by the story of Mickey Leland and his, his move from being an activist to being in the halls of power and the greatest and the most powerful nation in the world.
1: Thank you for that. I think that there are a lot of gems, kind of uh, methodological gems that we can take from that. Your turn to uh, culture, to study the 1960s, this moment of radicalism in the 1960s, how it manifests in the built environment, like what you get from walking sure. around a place where some kind of past trauma happened. Right. Um, music, news, as you mentioned. Um, all of that, I think, in, in the book, it does the work of uh, decentering the U.S. because it does not feel like a U.S.-centric book. As I mentioned to you before, I learned so much about Ethiopia um, through, through this through this text. So um, it's great to learn, to Thank get, get insight into how you did that. No, I appreciate it. Um, so in this land of plenty... Uh, traces the growth and transformation of Black radical politics through Leland's political career and his shift from an activist to a statesman. Um, And it shows this afterlife of 1960s era Black radicalism um, in in Congress. So can you tell us a little bit about this tension, if there is one at all, Mm -hmm. between radical politics and electoral politics and how that played out in Leland's life and perhaps you can go into explaining your interpretation of Leland as um, a person who carries on radical politics into yes. you know his political career.
0: Right. What does a radical even mean, right? So this tension between exactly. being a radical, as he fashioned himself again, a revolutionary, but mm-hmm. in a conservative, relatively conservative government in a capitalist country. How do you reconcile mm-hmm. that? And I you know I spent a lot of time with Cedric Johnson's book, From Revolutionaries to Race Leaders. Because he, in his book, he talks about the fact that moving into electoral politics has a moderating effect. So you can't be a revolutionary or even a radical and be in Congress because of the nature of legislating, having to compromise. Once you have to compromise, that's that's no no longer revolutionary. And also being a minority within Congress, not minority globally, of course, but just being a minority vote within Congress, the, the CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus. They had to they had to compromise a great deal. And so I'll come back to that as if I could just just tell the story of, and I try to get into Leland's head a bit because he wasn't, he so he's in, he's in, he's in Houston in the 19, 1970s, early 1970s, late 1960s, and he's an organizer, he wants to open these clinics. He goes to he graduates from Texas Southern University and he wants to be a pharmacist. So he goes to pharmacy school. But he's an activist in the streets. He's well known as an activist and an organizer. And he comes under the tutelage of, and here's, the, here's the irony. It took me a minute to get to this. He comes under the tutelage of Jean and Dominique de Menil. Yeah. These are billionaire, uh, it's a billionaire oil family in Houston. They're actually French. They're exiles from Vichy, France in the 1940s. Anti-fascist. Come to Houston because of oil. Uh, uh, Dominique's father was slumberger. And he invented the slumberjay, what's it called in English, the slumberjay, which uh, helps you detect uh, petroleum underground. So they make millions and billions of dollars from that. So she's an heiress, and they, and and John takes over this this, this slumberjay uh, brand, if you will. And so they have tons of money, and they're they're art collectors and philanthropists. If you know the book, uh, the black and Western art, the image of the black and Western art. I think uh, mm-hmm. Henry Louis Gates took that over, but the image of blacks and Western art is a multi-volume series. That's them. If you can just Google that and get the book, it's fantastic. So they're art collectors, particularly the images of art, depictions of African people in art. So they, they are anti-fascist and they're vehemently anti-racists, and they want to support radicals in Houston to try to shape uh, desegregation and shape the narrative around power in Houston. And so they adopt several people polit- politically: artists, activists, white and black, Latina, Latino. And Mickey Leland becomes John's guy, so to speak. He has the charisma. He has the good looks. He has the speaking skills. And he's hugely popular in Houston. And mm-hmm. so he basically falls under John's wing. And, and it's conflicting for, for, for Leland. Actually, after I published yeah. the book, I found these letters from Leland to John de as a white guy, older white guy. And they're very close. And he says to him, because uh, Mickey Leland didn't grow up with his father. And he's saying to him, it's hard for me to recognize you in this way. But I have to admit that you are the closest thing I have a father. And as an activist, as a black activist and a revolutionary, that's very difficult for me to admit. And to and to also say that he loves him in this way. And it took, I had to sit with that. <laughs> I had to sit with this and try to work this out. I'm talking to people in Houston, just trying to understand this relationship between these these folks. I think Leland also had to had to work this out. But the short of it is they fund him. They fund him, they pay for his pharmacy school, they pay for his organizing activities, and ultimately they pay for him to, to go to Africa, where he goes to Ethiopia, he goes to Nigeria. Uh, I can't track all the places he went. He definitely went to Kenya. And then he lands in Tanzania, and he's a black power activist. So Tanzania in 1971 under Nyerere, with Ujamaa socialism to him was really uh, the essence of black power, and he falls in love with Tanzania. This is true black power. And so he comes back with really with a sense of what you can do with political power, not just black power in the sense of organizing community, community control, running your institutions and having electoral power, having economic power, but really having political power, true political power. Mm -hmm. So he comes back to Houston and people had been encouraging him to run. They had seen Barbara Jordan, who was in the Texas State Senate and then became Congresswoman, first African-American woman to represent the South. Uh, I believe when the first one of maybe three black folks from the South in 1970s. Anyway, so she she shows what you can do with electoral power as well. So, uh, he he comes back. He's now ready, and John Demonil sponsors him to run, and he wins a seat in the Texas state legislature. And he's really conflicted about this. He write he writes that he really does not want to be here, but his people want him to be there, and he's he's very uh, antagonistic toward his colleagues. But then he slowly realizes. That the power of legislating and how that how that works and what he can bring back to his constituency. Pulling back a little bit, this is a big debate in in black America in the 60s Mm -hmm. and 70s. There are these conferences where Amir Baraka, who I don't think gets the credit he deserves for being a political organizer and bringing uh, radical politics and electoral politics together in Gary and in Newark with these conventions. Uh, Along with Charles Diggs, who's been in Congress since the 19 since 1955, who really shapes the possibilities of what African-Americans do in college and in Congress. And I could talk about that if you're interested, if we have time, just really what that Diggs model looks like. So anyway, so Leland's really conflicted, but he begins to see what he could accomplish with that, with being in uh, the Texas state legislature. And then when Barbara Jordan retires and and announces she's not going to run again in 70, 78, he vies for her seat. And, and he wins. But again, he, he comes in. There's very few people like him. Ron Dellums tells the story that Mickey Leland comes in with a with an Afro bell-bottom jeans and cowboy <laughs> boots coming from the Fifth Ward of Texas. And, and they're radical. And Dellum says, finally, I have someone who speaks like me, who thinks like me and looks like me, who we can now be and who's internationally minded the way that I am. And now mm-hmm. we're, we're ready to rock and roll in, in Congress. So there's always this 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 conflict Uh, that he has with electoral politics. And it does have somewhat of a moderating effect on him. But what they realize is that what they can't do radically with domestic politics, they could do radically in international affairs. And that's Mm -hmm. that's that's that focus that Dellums has coming out of Oakland with his focus on Mm -hmm. South Africa and, and Bill Gray coming out of Philadelphia. And of course, Diggs, who's the grandfather of them all in terms of radical politics in Congress coming out of Detroit. We know we can do certain things in international affairs that white folks aren't going to be down for in domestic affairs. So we're going to focus on Africa. And also that's coming out of, again, the grassroots, the communities, all these these many organizations, black and white in the 60s and 70s that are focused on Africa, particularly southern Africa, uh, Mozambique, Angola, which are still under Portuguese rule until 1975. And then we shift to southern Rhodesia, which finally gains independence 1980. And then we shift to S- South Africa. And Namibia, and that's really the last push for white supremacy on the continent. And I, I and I argue in the book is that that's really what that's the platform that these activists in Congress, that's what builds their power. And I suggest also in the black community, we've had our greatest strengths when we when we thought diasporically in the very least, but certainly with with Africa. So there's still this tension, and I don't know if I get it all right, but I, I certainly make my my case that there is space for radical politics. If we engage broadly, we build coalitions with the community, we, we bring the activism from the grassroots into Congress. And that's what this Congressional Black Caucus was doing and forming these organizations outside of, of, of Congress, like the Free South Africa movement, helping to right. found trans Africa. So we're not just legislating because that's, that's the new piece. Right. So before we just had to be activists, we could write letters, we can petition like the American Committee on Africa was petitioning. During the 60s and 70s, and Du Bois was petitioning, even Martin Luther King and uh, Roy Wilkins with the African-American Leadership Conference on Africa. They're petitioning and writing letters and protesting. But now in the 80s, again, following Diggs' model, we can legislate. And so I argue we have our our most profound moment of black power when we shift the U.S. perspective on Southern Africa from one of alliance And economic support, our most important trading power uh, power in the world for South Africa in the 80s is the United States. And I'm arguing that it's the activism that became that came before these folks and then these folks in Congress, which really changes the temperature for how the United States deals with South Africa. And then in 85 and 86, we have this the the anti-apartheid act, which transforms the United States relationship with, with, with with South Africa. And it's a great victory, although it's watered down from what the Congressional Black Caucus wanted. But it's the first time in, in, in U.S. history where the United States legislates against a Cold War ally. And this is under Reagan, although he vetoed it, but they were ultimately uh, successful. So there, there's this tension. And I try to decenter the U.S. as much as possible because there's more than just what's going on in the U.S. Among African Amer- with African-Americans going on. In fact, why these folks had part of why, I say why, but part of the reason why they were so successful in the 70s and 80s, and this goes back to the 60s as well, they took their cues from African activists, it's these exiles that are in the UK from southern Africa mm-hmm. and these exiles that are in the US and these delegations traveling. Leland was a big proponent of delegations. So you go there and you talk to the people on the ground, you form these alliances. Charles Diggs before him going to southern Africa, having these conversations and then other activists uh, mm-hmm. before him. Uh, Ivan Van Lirup, when he's engaged in uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the freedom movement in, in Mozambique. He spends a lot of time in Mozambique talking to the people, taking cues from them. He makes a, 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 a documentary about the movement uh, and others who are, are on the ground. So it's, it's, it's a multi-pronged approach to freedom, I think, that they borrow from the civil rights and black power movement, from the freedom movements in Southern Africa that ultimately leads them to this high watermark of, of black power.
1: Right. Right. I think one of my favorite... Uh One of my favorite uh, moments in the book that you talk about that kind of encapsulates this tension is kind of like when Leland shows up in a goatee and a dashiki uh, to uh, like the legislature, (laughs) and um, and yeah, Ron Dellums welcomes him and is like, "Yo, it's it's good to see you, brother."
0: Right. And so um,
1: I just thought that was really cool.
0: Although he had to change,
1: he
0: had to change. 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 Yeah, he had to to start putting on. He saw the (laughs) he saw the benefits of a nice suit. Yeah, so he did. <laughs> he saw the benefit and he cut his hair down. But that's also with the times. I think the Afro by the time we get to the 80s, the Afro is is uh, wearing thin on its on its fashionableness. But it's still. <laughs> but yeah, that's that, that's a true. That's a that's a quote from Ron Dellums.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, Whelan becomes inducted into the Congressional Black Cau- Caucus, um, the CBC Um, And it has a large influence at this point when he when he comes in in African affairs and he's in the company of Ron Dellums, Charles Diggs, John Conyers, Bill Gray. Um, What like so. Yeah. So we really see how you set up the CBC um, to take on as as an organization that takes on the work of black internationalism um, in ways that uh, a scholar like Carol Anderson has shown the NAACP did in previous decades. Can you tell us a little bit more about the CBC lobby, Leland's relationships within that lobby and how they welcome him and um, kind of the broader animating concerns and anxieties um, that are expressed through this body during this period that you're looking at in the 1980s?
0: Sure. So, again, I want to go back to Diggs because Diggs... Mm -hmm. The point is, um, and my good friend, Ron Williams III at University of North Mm -hmm. Carolina Chapel Hill is is finishing up a a fantastic book on trans-Africa. And he has a huge section on digs. There's a book on digs, but there's really not, there's not enough on Charles Diggs. Charles Diggs is so very, very important. Again, I I know I said it before, but I'll say it again. It's the the model that he established in Congress in 1955 as one of the three uh, African-American members of Congress. Uh, with this focus on on international affairs the global south particularly the caribbean and africa and he's pretty much alone until the late 1960s so he's working with these activists on the outside again Mary baraka and we have a, a growing number of mayors and, and city council members in different cities throughout the south and in, and in, and in the north and they're having these conferences of course famously uh, gary and, and, and newark um but he, what makes in uh, this fantastic uh, scene in, in, that I'm, I'm seeing in my head, but I wish I had, if I had a PowerPoint and we we're doing a presentation, I would, I would show it and play the speech where mm-hmm. uh, Diggs actually marches in the first African Liberation Day in, mm-hmm. in the United States, and was it 1972, 73, and he gives this speech
1: mm-hmm.
0: that, uh, despite what people say, the future of af- African Americans' future and the future of the Caribbean is inextricably bound to the future of Africa, mm-hmm. and. I argue that that's what makes Leland and and Dellums in particular unique and building on Charles Diggs. And it's somewhat different from what Carol Anderson writes about with this, the after the post Du Bois era in the NAACP Mm -hmm. and some of these other organizations and also some of these other black Congress people is that Diggs and Leland and Dellums saw themselves as third world actors. They weren't just American. He was a proud Houstonian. But he was of the third world. He was he believed that he was representing the interests in Congress before that at Texas state legislature of the global south of the Caribbean and Africa, particularly southern Africa and Ethiopia for, 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 for Leland. And Diggs, and, and Diggs was a part and Diggs was a, a, a big part of that. And so when Leland comes to Congress in 79, Diggs has one more year there. Um, and then he he resigns from Congress in, in 1980. That's a long story, long, sad story, tragic story yeah. that we don't have time to, to get into. But when he when Leland gets there, Africa is already a, a, a centerpiece of the Congressional Black Caucus agenda because of Diggs at the founding of the Congressional Black Caucus a few years earlier in their platform was advancing the interests of sovereignty in Africa and liberation in Southern Africa. That was written the as the founding plank of the Congressional Black Caucus. And so Leland comes in in 80, 1979 with, this, with his eye to the global South. And he really wants to get active in Southern Africa, but Charles uh, uh, Bill Gray beats him to it and Dellum's already active in Southern Africa. So he remains engaged there, but he has a, a bit of an ego, actually a, a lot of ego. He 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 was very self-assured to say the least. He wanted his own signature issue. And he says that I I, I wanted to work on these issues, but I, I wanted my own signatures. I want something that was Leland's. And so he thought about, Healthcare and tons of documents right. in his archive about, about healthcare. That's his background mm-hmm. as a pharmacist. But there were others who were already engaged in healthcare. So he won his own signature issue. So for, for the CBC, for the CBC initially, partly because he spoke Spanish and he had a, a large constituency in the 18th district uh, of Houston that were Latino and Latina, that he began to work on Latin American affairs for the CBC. That, that was his initiative. Again, this eye that you could have more traction in international affairs than you can, can have in domestic affairs. Not to say that we neglect domestic affairs, they, they didn't, but international affairs was, 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 was very important to them. So he's working on Latin American affairs and he's working uh, uh, on broader issues, but then he, he decides that hunger is gonna be his issue in part because hunger allows him to address the domestic issues in his own district, in the American yeah. South, generally, as an issue that affects African Americans, and and he's very uh, he, he's thinking about the uh, Latinx community as well as issue that affects them. Thinking about Native Americans, it's very important to him. So hunger is something that touches upon many different communities in the United States, but it's also something that allows him to engage internationally. And so he he lobbies and becomes the founding chair of the Hunger Committee on on con- in Congress, which is unique because most committees don't focus on uh, a sort of an issue that's about around insist- assistance or helping. That uh, you have you have uh, you have uh, caucuses around ethnic groups or, or shared interests. But this the shared interest here was was hunger. And so in '83 he becomes founding chair of the of, of the of the hunger committee, and then he takes he goes on his first delegation. He didn't lead this one uh, with Tony Hall to Ethiopia, and that really. Uh, opened his eyes to just the enormity of the problem of hunger in Ethiopia, tied to some of the geopolitics at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Ethiopia was a, was a Marxist na- nation uh, under Miriam, engaged in multi-civil wars. And again, their, their hunger problem was really not that they didn't have food, it was the access to food. It's difficult to plow fields in the midst of, of, of a multi-front civil war. And I I, I try to go into the, the complexities of this, Conflict mm-hmm. in the book, and it gets a little weedy, so it's kind of hard. I, I don't want to lose the Leland narrative in the book, but then I have to explain these these sort of complicated um, political issues in Southern Africa and and in Ethiopia. But then he becomes the champion for the U.S. to provide food aid for Ethiopia, and the idea is that so he's coming out of this. this he sees himself as a third world actor, not third world in the in the geographic sense, but third world politically and the idea that he's, he, does, he doesn't believe that the Cold War is legitimate. It's just a, so it's, it's, it's a way for the United States to, to, to extend its, its geopolitical footprint. He doesn't believe in, in race as the basis for a social structure. They're non aligned in terms of the Cold War, on and on and on. And so he, he sees anti-communism as illegitimate. And so uh, Ethiopia being a Marxist country in need of food assistance. This is under Reagan. And Reagan comes into office in 1980 or 1981, rather, January 1981, and quickly depletes the budget for food aid to Africa to zero. But then we have this famine. So Leland's push is not only to to get the United States to provide direct food aid, not aid through NGOs or volunteer uh, organizations, but directly to the government, which Reagan is against because Reagan does not want to provide any sustenance or assistance to a Marxist regime. but Leland's idea is that if, if the United States can prove that it can help resolve a food crisis in a Marxist country, then it can resolve the crisis of hunger around the world. So his idea was to divorce ideology from food assistance, to divorce politics from food assistance. And in some ways, he's inspired by Cuba, with Cuba Cuba's assistance to Cuba's volunteerism around the, around the world, particularly in the global south, Centered around uh, medical assistants and engineers, and and such, he's thinking the United States can get on the right side of history, use its power that it, it, it that it that it's gained, use the its tremendous resources to resolve some of the world's problems. So Ethiopia becomes becomes his test case, and that finally now he has this signature issue, and he's going on. He leads uh, seven delegations to Ethiopia, uh, the seventh of which, obviously, uh, he as I said in the very beginning of our conversation, he he died in that in that tragic in that tragic, tragic uh plane crash. Mm-hmm. And a part of his struggle as well was to get African Americans to see Africa outside of a racial lens because there's this history of focusing on white supremacy in Africa, understandably so. So Portuguese Portugal is important for Angola and Mozambique, a little bit for Guinea-Bissau as well, but it's a slightly different it's a different colonial situation. So we focus on Angola and Mozambique, there's a racial component there. That's natural for African-Americans to, to engage there. Uh, Namibia and Rhodesia makes sense as well. Zimbabwe makes sense. South Africa certainly makes sense. It resonates with us. But Leland said there's, a, there's, a, there's a, um, there are limits to that. He was looking to the future. When there is no more apartheid in South Africa, around what issues will we engage Africa? So he, he wanted, uh, that was another motivation for looking to Ethiopia. Ethiopia right. is, uh, uh, we can all agree that hunger is, is a problem. We could all agree that uh, all countries should have diplomatic ties with the United States. Ethiopia severed diplomatic ties with the United States in 1980. So he he's saying that he wants to get past this ideological humanitarian assistance. He wants non-political humanitarian assistance, but there's a politics to his humanitarianism as well. So he's he's also including some politics politics uh, in his outreach um, as he as he tries to. Uh, shape the narrative around the ways in which the United States is engaging Ethiopia and then get this historic food aid to Ethiopia, which well, he su- succeeds in 85 and 86. He, the United States, uh, despite Reagan's best intentions, ends up giving historic levels of food aid, direct food aid to Africa in general and mm-hmm. Ethiopia in particular. That's not just because of Leland, but Leland was a very important figure in that, mm-hmm. in that move. Well, let's, let's talk a
1: little bit more about, um, yeah, his signature issue. So uh, obviously the famines in Ethiopia, food aid, it becomes his central concern. Um, And the political underpinnings of this were so interesting to me. Um, You described it as a neutral humanitarianism. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering um, how you see Leland's, you know, emerging politics on humanitarianism as a distinct type of, radical politics that's perhaps in the tradition of previous radicalisms, Mm -hmm. or if it's something completely new, how does it, you know, how, how is it in dialogue with the ways that people are thinking about human rights in the late 1970s? Um, And, you know, yeah, just extending some of those ideas or or Mm -hmm. not.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. That's also something I really had to investigate and do a lot of reading and thinking about, I had a, I had a hard time with that actually. And thinking about, um, human rights and disaggregating human rights and humanitarianism. A lot of scholars, and I take Samuel Moyne, I take the lead of Samuel Moyne and his work of how I understand human rights and looking at why African-Americans historically, with some exceptions, did not really focus on human rights. Of course, famously, Malcolm X wanted to bring the United States government on charges of human rights violations at the U.N., but there's always this, this issue of the freedom struggle being center, centered around liberties and civil rights. And as, and as, Dan, as, uh, as Samuel Moyne describes in The Last Utopia, it's really Carter who, who changes how we think about human rights in this country. And it slowly, took, it slowly gained traction. But most African-American leaders weren't using the language of, of, of human rights. And so, and Leland doesn't use the language of human human rights. He 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 doesn't speak in terms of humanitarianism humanitarianism so much, either. Although he 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 animates humanitarianism, and he's thinking about humanitarianism not as we think about it now. I, I think in the 1990s, and I get to this a little bit in the end of the book. There's a shift in how we talk about humanitarianism and how the United States engages with humanitarianism. So Leland is thinking. About humanitarianism, the way the Red Cross thinks of humanitarian, assisting those in need with humanity. Uh, if you can help you, you, you help. It's, it's, and in the, in the 90s, humanitarianism becomes about intervention. And it could yeah. be it could be military. And I don't think Leland foresaw that. I don't think he could have imagined even that his colleagues in the Congressional Black Caucus would be advocating for military interventions into places like Somalia and into mm-hmm. Darfur. He would have, I, I believe, he would have been totally against that. He felt that, again, with this model of what you can do with your resources, looking at Cuba, looking at Algeria to a lesser extent, the United States is on the wrong side of history. But we can get the United States on the right right side of history if humanitarianism replaces the Cold War as how mm-hmm. it sees the world, how it sees the global South in particular. So if you could provide food aid, if you could provide development assistance. That's how Leland was, was, was saying that. And then there's this, uh, there's this shift away from that in the 1990s. But there is some conversation around human rights with the debates around South Africa that I saw. And I write a little bit about uh, Leland and his colleagues become somewhat trapped around the language of human rights. Because Reagan is declaring solidarity with, this, or declaring support for the solidarity movement in Poland during the Cold War, uh, which is which is under communist rule, and so this liberation movement in Poland, he he Reagan uses the, the language of, of of human rights, and said we need to re- we need to support the resistance movement, and let de- democracy prevail, and, and and their human rights are being violated. And so Leland and Dellums and Co turn to South Africa and say, well, if you're gonna do this for, 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 for Poland, you must do the same for, for South Africa, even more so because South Africa is your ally. And when they're attacking black South Africans and coloreds and Indians and those whites who are alliance with all these folks who are anti-apartheid, that's U.S. money that's doing that. That's U.S. money that's paying for these, these, these weapons. That's U.S. money that allows the South African government to stay afloat, so you're complicit in that, and so th- that's one area where we see we see the uh, the mm-hmm. language of of human rights in particular. But the trap that I'm describing is that there, then when, as Leland says, uh, we, we need to we need to uh, get away from constructive engagement. Reagan supported Chester Crocker's his mm-hmm. uh, assistant secretary of state for African affairs' idea uh, policy of constructive engagement. We're not gonna castigate South Africa. We're not gonna impose sanctions on South Africa. We're gonna engage in them constructively, have conversation and through moral suasion, get them to open up to uh, democracy, multiracial democracy over time. And so the Congressional Black Caucus and others, and others who are uh, aligned with them in the anti-apartheid and free South Africa movement and the student movement across the country, they reject that, they reject that idea. They, they see that the United States is, is just kicking the ball down the field, and, and at the very least being complicit with this language of constructive engagement. But at the same time, Leland is advocating for dialogue with Mengistu in Ethiopia, who's Marxist, so that we can ensure that humanitarian assistance flows easily and quickly to those who are in need in, in, in Ethiopia. And so many on the political right say, OK, well, we're supporting the Solidarity Movement in, in Poland because of anti-communism, because of the Cold War. We are engaging South Africa because that's our Cold War ally. But you want us to not talk to our Cold War ally, South Africa, mm-hmm. but then you're advocating that we engage Ethiopia. And, and I was surprised to see this. And they put um, some African-American conservatives at the lead in this in this conversation. They said, well, you, that means you're racist. If you the only reason why you single out South Africa is because South Africa is white ruled. You don't say the same thing about other black countries that 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 we should we should marginalize them. In fact, you're saying we should engage every other black country, but a white country, you're saying we should we should marginalize and we should impose sanctions. And so there are many Congress people, and and even Reagan says this is racism. So, so it's like these people who are anti-racists being charged with racism. So in some ways, this idea of of uh, sanctions and the human rights language they get tangled into that. So why aren't we criticizing? If you're so invested in human rights in South Africa, then why aren't you saying the same thing about Mengistu in, in Ethiopia? If you're invested in human rights in South Africa and you say we should oppose sanctions, why aren't you saying the same thing about Zaire or Liberia? Well, the right. and others would come back and say, well, this is our most important ally on the African continent and, they're, and we're basically funding them. We're heavily invested there. That's why we hold our allies to a higher standard than we hold those who are not our allies, such as, as Ethiopia. So that's how I, I, I had to really investigate how they're using this language, mm-hmm. how it means something different in the 1980s than what it means now, how it meant something in the 1980s, different than what it meant in the 60s and 70s. And so these shifts and the ways in which it uh, became a, center, a central part of the debate at particular times and was was marginalized and less less significant at others.
1: Yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. The, um this idea that Leland was imagining a, like a post-Cold War politics is, is so interesting to me, especially through this lens right. of humanitarianism um, and right. supplanting a lot of the animus that, you know, went into the Cold War uh, debates. Um, yes, yeah, is a fascinating argument. Um, so like with that, I kind of want to talk about um, how Leland struggled to get the support that he needed, even within the CBC, to embrace this broader vision, this broader transformative vision of what uh, like humanitarian aid could do about this, you know, what this mission of ending world hunger could do. Um, and you argue that this is in part because of black Americans investment in the contemporaneous struggle against white minority rule in South Africa. So can you tell us a little bit more about this and how anti-apartheid limited possibilities for African American congressional action on other aspects of US foreign policy?
0: Sure. Yeah, that's great. When I I launched into this project and just doing some preliminary reading, I was imagining or I was understanding the anti-apartheid movement in the United States as an extension of the civil rights movement, and that's why it resonated, but I think that argument is wrong. I don't think it's an extension. Uh, As I I, I, I put in the book a a bit, and and since then I've done more research, we see the ways in which the civil rights movement and black power are part of a larger global movement, third world movement against white supremacy. So I think it would be wrong to say anti apartheid movement as an extension of um, the civil rights movement. That's, that's, that's a, that's, a, that's a U.S. that's U.S. centered analysis. And if we think about it globally and diasporically, we'll see even Martin Luther King is saying that Martin Luther King is saying that in the, in the, in the sixties, that, the civil rights movement is is part of this global movement against against apartheid. He's not against white supremacy. He's not the only one. So this question of um, these debates within the CBC and the direction it's going to go. One of the one of the issues, uh, and this also this idea of how Leland's pushing them to think broader than Southern Africa, more broadly than than race. And this is where we get into some of the debates, and, the, and this is where it gets complicated in the 90s, and I allude to this in the closing chapter of the book, where, again, white supremacy is, is an easier narrative, it's understandable. We, 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 we know who the good guys and the bad guys are. <laughs> Most of the bad guys happen to be white. Those are the those are the, the settler colonizers, are, are, are the white ones. The good guys are the, are the black folks, are the good women, are the black folks who are fighting for liberation, same in this country those who are fighting for civil rights and individual liberties and freedoms in this country. These are the good guys, and the white folks are, are, are the bad guys and, the, and the, the bad women. And Leland does not um, believe that anti-communism sh- should, should serve as a framework for foreign policy. In some ways, anti partheid is, I mean, anti-communism is the U.S. foreign policy toward the global south. But there are some debates, because others in the CBC we're invested in anti-communism, believed that communism was detrimental to the future of the United States and was black, bad for Global South countries. Leland, Leland didn't, didn't hold that belief. So there's, there's that debate. How, how deep should we go with with Mengistu in Ethiopia? How, how deep should we go with Frelimo in Mozambique? How deep should we go with the MPLA or even UNITA for that matter in, in Angola? And there are many conservatives, African-American conservatives, not conservatives as we understand them today, not that far right, but there are certain people who are on in the spectrum of politics, uh, right of center, who are African Americans, who supported UNITA in Angola, who believed that UNITA was an antidote for communism and the spread of communism in Angola and in southern Africa generally. So there were these there were these debates and these tensions. So Leland had support for his endeavors in Ethiopia. But he did not have this. He did not have the same uh, the coalescing around him and his efforts as we had around South Africa. In part, that's because of this question of anti-part, a uh, question of uh, I keep saying anti-partisan, anti-communism. Uh, but also because of race, it didn't it didn't it didn't factor on the on the African america agenda in the same way. It wasn't a fight against white supremacy. And also, there's this tradition coming out of Black politics that we don't we don't criticize uh, African leaders. We don't criticize African heads of state. And once we delve into Ethiopian politics or Mozambique politics or or um, Angolan politics post-liberation, then we have to begin to question the leadership or challenge leadership or understand see where they fall in terms of their in terms of their policy. So he 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 had support, but he did not have this same they no didn't rallied around Ethiopia in the, in the same way. And he saw that this was detrimental. And then when, when we are reluctant to engage in complex issues, uh, then we can't really get into post-liberation politics in Africa. And so we see this when we get to the 1990s, when we have a multiracial election in South Africa and Mandela becomes the first democratically elected president of South Africa. People call him the first, the first uh, black president of South Africa. He was the first democratically elected of South, uh, democratically elected president of South mm-hmm. Africa. Then we have to get into politics so we see what happens then when rwanda comes up the same year as south africa has this historic election with rwanda folks in the cbc couldn't make heads or tails of it there was they didn't know who, the tutsis or the hutus who were the good guys who are the bad guys we see this in darfur it becomes very complicated so we see these debates in the cbc so what i and on and on and on and what i'm arguing with with somalia uh Haiti, we can we could rally around Haiti because the Cubans have the wet foot policy when they come here as refugees, exile, political exiles, they get they get uh, sanctuary where Haitians were being turned back by the by the U.S. Coast Guard, and so the CBC saw this as racist. So again, there's this racial component to it that they could rally around, but other issues that were more compli- complicated, they 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 could make heads or tails. So Abacha during the Nigerian. Uh, uh, Abacha, when um, Abacha's uh, stealing of the Nigerian election with Abiola, the CBC was conflicted. Right? had uh, some people going one way and some people going going another way. So Leland understood this. He he saw this. He saw that if we if we can't get beyond this racial lens, we're going to have problems. We need to be in alliance and solidarity with Africa because we want the best for Africa, and and also for ourselves. We want the best for Caribbean countries and for ourselves and in Latin America. As well, and so to deal with them capaciously and broadly with all of the the benefits and the problems that that come with them, and so again, I argue that uh, black politics in the u s really suffers from this lack of engagement internationally. I know it's harder to do that now when you have heads of, heads of state are less eager to meet with grassroots leaders and congress people than liberation leaders, of course they needed us when they were fighting for the liberation in Mozambique and in South Africa and Angola, so they were mm-hmm. Ready to meet with folks in these various organizations and the CBC. Heads of state want to meet with the president of the United States, so uh, the 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 dynamics are different. But we still should be engaged in 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 a very on a very high level in a very robust way. It would serve us well, and it would it would certainly serve our our uh, comrades in the global south well.
1: Yeah, and I think that's an that's an enduring lesson um, that we can learn from Leland that that we cannot be reluctant about. Um, having these complicated uh, conversations and these complicated debates, and it only becomes more important as you know historians begin to look at uh, the legacy of the first black president. Right. So um, right. this is a kind of important learning from the work that you've done here. Right. Um. So though Leland's life ended tragically and far too soon, he created inroads for direct aid assistance to several African countries, um, and he fought to keep. Uh, uh, third world politics in in US Congress, kind of front and center. Um, how might, how might we best understand other aspects of Leland's legacy in African American international politics following the 1980s?
0: Sure. so after the 80s, so I think I think as historians, um, it's important to write about successes, and why movements are successful, why individuals achieve what they set out to achieve in the context in which they do this, how countries prevail or move in the right direction, right? So South Africa, we write about the success story of moving from apartheid to multiracial democracy. We, move, we talk about African countries moving from colonialism to, to independence, this triumph there. But there's also something to be said for recording failed efforts as well. Not, not everything ends in success. And I don't, I don't see Leland as a success story. There's this moment of success in the 80s when we bring black power ethos and this third world politics into the halls of power in the most powerful country in the world, arguably. And it's the only Western power that has Global South activists in its government. So we have these black power activists who are duly elected to their, to their seats in power, to seats in Congress. No other government can claim to make that claim. And I think that's very important. But in his effort to get the United States on the right side of history and have humanitarianism replace this Cold War um, lens through which they engage the world, he failed in that. His effort to use United States wealth and resources to end hunger in the world, he failed in that uh, to get African-Americans to see. Uh, African affairs beyond the racial lens in which they engage domestic politics. It, he failed. He failed in that. So he has these successes. He was not a failure, but certainly he didn't. His his vision did not come into fruition. And so I think that's important. It's important to understand why he had these successes and these the context in which he existed and what he emerged out of. But it's also important to understand the limits of what he could do as a congressperson, the limits of what he could do as someone who saw himself as a third world actor, as someone who saw himself as a Catholic, uh, influenced deeply by the works of Dorothy Day and and the Catholic Worker Movement. So the, the America that we're living in today is not the America that Leland hoped would be in 2020. And the Africa that we have is not the Africa that Leland envisioned in 1989 when he set out in August for that that final trip he took to southeastern Ethiopia. And the CBC, he, couldn't, he would never have imagined that the Congressional Black Caucus would be engaged in the type of politics and this jockeying for leadership and this focus on fundraising that the CBC is engaged in today. I'm not saying that the CBC is bad. I'm not saying there are not people in the CBC who are doing good work. But it's not the same activist, globally minded CBC that we had in the 19, in the 19, late 1970s and 1980s. And so I think what we get from Leland at the end of the day, we get a window into, uh, again, the afterlife of radicalism. We get a window into the potential of, of Black power, what Black power became uh, for those folks. Some folks went off to found schools, as Russell Rickford describes in his book, We Are an African People. Yeah. Some people... Moved to Africa and and lived various lives, opened clinics and opened schools, became farmers, what have you. Some people set upon the path of becoming revolutionaries. Some people went into into politics and became mayors, and in Lila's case, became a congressperson. And, I, and I'm suggesting that this is a this is unique, the 1980s. Not only because I not only because I came of age in 1980, uh, but I think it's 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 a unique moment because. Uh, here we, have a, here we have the logical evolution of Black power. It was the direction the movement was going. And we get, some, we get some sense of that through the life of Leland and his activism.
1: Right. And I think that we can use historical narratives, like the one that you've, you've made about Leland through all of your research, to, to like use the past to put checks on the present. Sure. And uh, through what, through what you're saying, like, uh, you know, we were going in this direction and now right. you know, we're
0: going another direction. So what Absolutely.
1: does that mean for how we move now? Absolutely. So, and I also think, I ask, I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: Just, just, go ahead. just very quick, I want to say that uh, <laughs> elected officials are reflections of the communities they come out of mm-hmm. as much as they are reflections of the politics of the time. So I think Leland was possible. Dellums was possible. Um, Robert Jordan was possible. Shirley Chisholm was possible who i 'm sitting in the district that Shirley Chisholm represented in the 1970s unbought and unbossed um, that was her that was her slogan she she reflected a lot of the politics of the time and they they and they uh, helped make her possible they helped make Leland possible so I think that the leadership we have in many respects reflects some of the politics that's going on in in the local community, not just among African Americans, but in the United States generally, I think the temper the temperature has changed, and the relationship between the governed and the governing has 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 changed dramatically, radically uh, during the nineteen nineties and early 2000s.
1: Absolutely. Before we before we go, I have one more question for you. Sure. Um, I'm wondering if you could share with us about what you're working on now.
0: So right now, yeah, I'm limited in what I can work on because I'm, I'm mm. largely I'm trapped in New York City. I was actually supposed to be in Nigeria, supposed to be coming back from Lagos a week ago. I was gonna go there for the Lagos Studies Conference, and I was also gonna do some, some archival work there. So I'm playing with an idea. I don't really have a a nice, nice pithy statement about my <laughs> current research. But what I'm looking at is it's coming out of the Leland book. Just looking at Southern Africa and the importance of Southern Africa for the Global South during the 1960s, 1970s, and early 1980s, how that became the stand-in for African politics. For those who are thinking continentally, those who are thinking globally, I'm arguing that uh, Southern Africa becomes the consensus issue in Black power politics, in Pan-Africanism, and in Third World politics. So that becomes the final front because it's the last stage of white supremacy on the continent. There's this idea uh, bringing up from what Nkrumah said, the, the political kingdom, seek you first, the political kingdom, this idea that once we get sovereignty, once we get national liberation, then black folks can go, can go about the business of, of being free and building their own society. So we had to deal with these white folks in Southern Africa. So I'm looking at the ways in which that is animated through people like Michael Manley in Jamaica. Once he turns to the global stage, um, mm-hmm. uh, Partly through the tutelage of Walter Rodney, and he turns to Neuraria in Tanzania. And he here's this light-skinned Jamaican who really doesn't see is not really seen as black or of African descent truly. He he turns to Southern Africa and says, and this is how he builds his voice in the global stage. Obasu Joe, at his turn of head of state um a military um, government in, in Nigeria in the 1970s, around the same time as Manly, he wants to gain a voice in the global stage, particularly in Africa, but also globally, he turns to Southern Africa. And again, I'm saying Southern Africa, not South Africa in particular, but Southern Africa, Portuguese mm-hmm. colonies, Portuguese territories, uh, N- uh, Namibia, Rhodesia, and, and South Africa. Uh, and I'm also looking at um, African American activists. I'm and paying close attention to uh, Sylvia Hill and, 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 and um, Van Lirup out of, out of New York and Los Angeles, Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, Pre- Prexy Nesbitt. Who? Turning toward Portugal, turning toward Mozambique. So again, looking at, and also looking at uh, Indian activists at the time who are looking at Southern Africa. So I'm just, I'm thinking through these documents as I go through them and looking at the ways in which uh, they're imagining a post-white supremacist Africa and the ways in mm-hmm. which they're coming together around Southern Africa and how that shapes their politics and their movement and the ways in which they, they go about the business of, of, of ridding Africa of white supremacy.
1: Well, that sounds like a fantastic project. Uh, you know that my interests dovetail uh, very closely with that. Of so course. I look forward to talking to you more about how that uh, develops. But for now, I just want to say that I really appreciate you speaking with us about In This Land of Plenty, Mickey Leland in Africa and American Politics. Thank you for being on the show, Ben.
0: Thank you so much, Amanda. I enjoyed it.